Episode 27 of uh, the Wood, Air, and Metal podcast. My favorite time signature. <laughs> 20 over 7 or 27 16? Yes. <laughs> the same why time. not? Irrational time signatures will work for most of the things, because why not? Yeah. Um, anyways, so Adam Keeler over here, Tim Mirth down below, at least from my perspective. And again, that's all that counts. And Dr. Heather... Oh, dang it. Ma- Maliuk. Thank you. Uh, we should have done that before we started. Can no we edit problem. that out and I do that again? No. <laughs> no? We're going to keep that just to keep me embarrassed? All right. I can, I can live with it. People will remember, though, too, so it's, it's a thing. Maliuk. Yep. Yeah. No, it's like if I was... Uh, no, I can think you can see the red. It's coming in there. The slight embarrassment of me not practicing the name ahead of time. Either way, it, it happens. So she is an audiologist. Uh, I believe we were in school at the same time at the University of Akron, or at least we walked by each other in the hallway. Um, Probably. I started in 2006. So. Oh yeah, then I was there. I was in the music school from 05. I graduated in 08. Okay. Yep. So yeah, for sure. We were all there at the same time, and uh, from there, at, I'm looking at your bio here. You went to Kent State to finish your uh, doctorate in audiology, mm-hmm. and then you started. Hey, you, you missed that. She started as a. She's a musician. Yes. Yeah. That, yep. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that. I figured that you know since we're all in the music school, that's pretty much where you live. Yeah. yeah. I just figured everybody else knew that. Yeah, so. musician first, audiologist second. There you go. Yep. Okay, and so you went to Kent, got your audiology degree degree mm-hmm. from there, mm-hmm. and then um, from there you started soundcheck audiology right out the gate, or is no? It, okay. No. So, so I moved to Chicago. Um, so an audiologist is, for anybody listening, I guess I should say, in case you don't know what an audiologist is, for any listener, we are doctors of hearing and balance. So I happen to work in hearing conservation world and music audiology, which is like a, a very rare specialty. I think right now there's, in, there's somewhere between five and ten of us in the country oh, wow. who, are, who are music audiologists. Um, and I became one by, by training under one. So when someone gets an audiology degree, they have to do what's called an externship year. Um, it's sort of like a residency, but it's called an externship. So I moved to Chicago and I did part of mine at Sensophonics Hearing Conservation, which is an in-ear monitor manufacturer and also one of the only brick and mortar musicians clinics for hearing in the world. Um, oh. So I spent part of, my, part of my year there and then the other part of my year was spent at a veterans administration hospital. Um, learning like the medical side of things and cochlear implants and all that good stuff. Um, at Sensophonics, I was trained by Michael Santucci, who's sort of the father of what I do, Dr. Michael Santucci. Um, and he, he was one of the guys who created music audiology in the mid eighties, like way back, way back when, um, he and I hit it off and I ended up directing his clinic for an additional about five years after I graduated. Um, and then I missed 
I missed Ohio and I wanted to come home. So sometimes when people hear I left Sensophonics, they're like, oh, you know, did something happen? No. Like I'm still actually I spoke with three people at Sensophonics today. <laughs> I'm still very <laughs> See, close with them. I saw you them. shared something from them recently. Yeah. Or yeah. They have a they had a job opening. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I call I call Mike Santucci my second dad sometimes or my audiology dad. But um, so I moved back to Ohio in 2017. And at the very end of 2017, early 2018 is when I opened Soundcheck Audiology. Um, and so that's been my main gig since. Excellent. Excellent. So, I mean, what's the, uh, where to start? I mean, so many questions as musicians, and especially, can I talk about myself for a minute? I think please, please quick. do. Uh, mainly because um, I have bilateral tinnitus. Uh, and, uh, you know, luckily it's a fixed C, like a high, one octave above the highest C on the piano, which is great because it helps with the pitch, but it is kind of annoying. And I know that, you know, most of us musicians, especially guitar players with huge racks and, uh, stacks of amps and everything else are, are, are hearing tends to get damaged over time. Uh, especially my age group, which is in the forties, because when we started playing, Nobody really cared about sound or hearing protection. It was like just you know yeah, get up there and find that, cotton maybe right. Yeah, if you could yeah. find cotton or whatever cigarette you know, butts, whatever yeah. <laughs> that would work. That to, to be you know, a strange. I got ear cancer and tinnitus going on. It's crazy. <laughs> I shouldn't have lit those, but I figured it would get rid of the wax. But anyways, um, so the uh, with that like coming up in that era, there was absolutely nothing really on on hearing protection. It was like you just kind of like went and if you saw a show and you walked out and your ears were ringing and it felt like you were underwater, it was just part of the gig. And if you were band practice for hours on end, that was yeah. it. But it, um, I mean, my tinnitus de developed probably about five years ago. Like it was one of those times where like normally it would have like a ringing in my ear and it would go away pretty quick. But it didn't stop this one time. And, and it just, and after that, that was it. It just kept going. I'm like, this is kind of annoying. Like, it didn't interfere with life, but whenever everything else died down, there it was. Um, and so I went to my audiologist now, which is like right around the corner from me. And he's like, oh, yeah, you got both ears, blah, blah, blah. Congratulations, you know. And I got the, the hearing protection done and everything else. Now, in my 20s, I started to get wise on the terms of uh, hearing protection and be like, you know, this is probably not smart. You know, if I'm walking around and my head is feeling underwater after seeing a show, so I should probably put something in there. Mm. And uh, that also at the same time I was working in a factory. So they had like tons of hearing things to stick in the ear. So I was like, oh, yeah, I might as well just use these. And mm -hmm. it's kind of been that way ever since. And now once I started teaching, I always would get on my students case of being like, listen, you're practicing with a band, you got hearing protection in. You're going to a show, you put hearing protection in. You don't get it back. Once it's gone, that's it, at least as far as I know. Uh, you know and what my audiologist tells me, once the damage is done, you're, you're stuck with it. And it, uh, it really, I mean, it, it comes and goes. Some days are better than others. Um, the, at night, it's probably the, the most annoying. You know, I have to have white noise or I'm not going to really sleep well because yeah. that's all I hear. But that's just, uh, that's typical with the thing and part of the, I guess, uh, the, that's my life now. And it, I, I don't regret, I mean, I regret a little bit, but, you know, it's like it just the way that it is. I still play and I still can hear everything and that's fantastic. And I'll take the high C as long as it stays there. It might move, but, you know, either way, it's a nice point of reference and it drives me nuts when things are slightly out of tune <laughs> you're out of tune how do you know well i have that note ringing in my head all the time we're really close friends so with that like 
I, I think it's great that you specialize in the musician aspect of things, because I think for the most part, just kind of what I said before, that we we ignore it. You know, we just kind of, especially the guitar players, it's just like, all right, let's plug in, let's get loud and let's go for it, because it just sounds cool and you want to kind of be that guy. Um, and in today's day and age, like that, that mentality is still kind of there, though there's a little bit of more public uh figures that are like hey my hearing is really bad you want to take care of it paul gilbert being one of them uh, i remember reading an article about him he's an electric guitar guy he's like man i just started not hearing stuff and the ringing so i i thank you for getting into that aspect of the audiology because i think it's going to really help i mean i know it and you probably know as you do this and i'm going to hopefully shut up in a second here but um it, you uh, are, are kind of bridging that gap between the musician and the, the ear health. So what are like, just if somebody came in for like the first time to see you and they're a musician, how do you approach like getting them to keep a constant uh, vigilant attitude towards uh, ear health? That's, um, that's an interesting question. And also I have, I mean, I have so many things I want to say. <laughs> Go right ahead. Yes, I, you know, here. I'm not going to, I don't want to like start a, a telehealth appointment here um, <laughs> about your tinnitus, but I, you know, when someone comes into my clinic or they see me for a telecare appointment, which I do that too, um, a lot of hearing conservation and especially music audiology is counseling and education. And even when you dive into the data on hearing conservation, so you mentioned working in industry, in a factory, mm -hmm. I do that kind of work too. Um, okay. In fact, up until a month ago, I was doing some night shifts uh, at a local factory here in Medina doing their OSHA hearing tests. So I'm, so I'm in that realm as well. And it's really interesting. Whenever I see a musician, I try to take the OSHA regulation, the law, and sort of model it to them because there is no regulation for the music industry. But we know through case studies, what's done in other industries will work. And that's just where we're at at this point in time um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, a lot more research needs to be done and, and things like that. But when someone comes in for an appointment with me, I spend maybe the first 40 minutes or so on getting to know them, listening to them, and educating them. And even if that's all they come in for, that's, I'm happy. Sometimes people will schedule appointments with me online just to get my opinion and get some education because the education in terms of specifics, especially with like in-ear monitors is not really out there. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, if it's a typical appointment and we're doing the full gamut of getting in-ears or earplugs, I'll do a full hearing evaluation. That's the other thing that's really important. Musicians tend to see an audiologist when they need something. So let me, let me ask you a question, Adam. Sure. When you went and saw the audiologist, what prompted you to go? The ringing in my ears. I mean, that was... So, it was the, so it was the ringing and not like the purchase of in-ears or earplugs? No, it had, okay. it had everything well, to do with that. So. So, that's a, so that's a little bit more rare then. So what I tend to see is people will come into the clinic because they want to get a pair of earplugs or a pair of in-ear monitors. That tends to be the driving factor. Um, and, and part of that is how audiologists have set up our side of the industry, um, where we have somewhat tied ourselves to the sale of devices, uh, where really the audiologist is more about the care side. So I'm getting off the point of your question, but I spend most of the appointment doing education and um, counseling and, and informational counseling and all kinds of stuff. And then I do a full hearing evaluation, whether it's a baseline or an annual test, and then any fitting of devices if someone's getting in-ears or earplugs or hearing aids or what I call alternative amplification or anything like that. Um, I think the 
my point in saying, why did you go to the appointment is the least part of protection almost not really, but almost is, is the gear. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if a musician wants to protect themselves and they're thinking, man, I can't get the really expensive earplugs or I can't get the really expensive in-ears, they can get some over-the-counter plugs, wear them when they can, you know, for 20 bucks. And if they're getting an annual hearing test and a checkup, they know if they're protecting themselves. And that's the part that's often missed. Is so it's a matter of prevention, like right out the gate with that yes. through the education, just being like, Absolutely. do something about it. Absolutely. And even... You know, typically someone becomes someone who's of a certain age in their 40s or maybe they're, you know, um, older and they've gotten a degree in music and then they're just getting into the wellness scene and they're realizing, man, I should have started taking care of myself. Like as an example, I have chronic back pain from being a violinist and fiddler. And if I would have started as a kid learning how to care for my back the right way as a petite woman who plays violin, this maybe wouldn't have happened. Um, and it's really the same with hearing. So we know musicians deal with all kinds of issues with their bodies. My goodness. I'm, I'm on the co-chair. I'm a co-chair for the wellness committee of the college music society. And we often talk about care of people learning instruments, mental health, uh, physical health, even what kind of surgeons they should go see and how to talk to providers, how to see an audiologist and things really need to start younger if possible. And the reason I say that is earplugs. Perfect example. All right, you've trained your whole life to an open ear canal, and suddenly you get a gig that pays, and you go and you get earplugs and you pop them in. You say, I can't play with these. Right. <laughs> you know, where you really need time to ear train to them. So I often say for children who are learning music, they should be taught to be what I call bioral. So, like instead of bilingual, where they can learn to play without hearing protection and with. Um, so, no matter the situation they're in, they know how to speak the acoustic language. Of the, of what I'm curious. Um, so I think guitar players and like drummers and stuff, I, I'm imagining most of us know the danger that we're in, you know, <laughs> like we have loud things. It's probably not a shocking thing in a lot of ways it's for somebody who's been doing that for a while to come in, have some hearing loss, kind of accepting it. But I'm wondering like the the less like, thrashy instruments like guitar and drum drums you know, do you do you get people that are often surprised like playing violin or yes. I mean, violin's loud right in your ear but yeah. other you know wind instruments and things like that that are surprised when they have some kind of hearing loss or well maybe hearing surpri- issues? I, you know yeah surprised might be the right word where they expect it to be the rockers right um i work i work in the classical music scene a lot So I do full wellness programs for orchestras. So like the National Symphony Orchestra is, you know, I've worked with them or Minnesota Orchestra or whatever, what have you. Um, And you would be surprised as well, I think, depending on where someone is sitting in the orchestra, what instrument they're playing. And they're sitting in front of the trombones or something. Yeah. Well, (laughs) yes. And that could very well be. I mean, there are some string players, for example, who might be lower risk, like a bass or a cellist, because their own instruments facing the sound is pointing away from them. But there was a study done in the late nineties. I want to say 96 or 97, which is so long ago at this point, but um, it was, no, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) It was an, it was a study looking at, um, hearing loss in violinists in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. And there's a certain configuration on a hearing test that we look for to indicate injury from sound. Um, And 70% 
of the violinists had a hearing test that indicated injury. 70. Now, was it primarily on one side? Left ear. Yeah. Left ear. Because your... Our bodies are so interesting uh, for, for lots of reasons, but we, we have what's called a head shadow effect. So if a sound is coming at one ear, the, the mass on your body, called your head, is going to block some of that sound pressure sure. level from reaching the other ear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, violinists, I tend to see an asymmetric hearing loss. Drummers as well, I often see asymmetry. Um, and that's something that in terms of hearing conservation, um, sometimes I I get surprise reactions from other hearing conservationists or from students where they're not really used to seeing sometimes that much asymmetry on a person oh, yeah. who's sound exposed. Uh, but it is quite common in music to see that. And and the classical world, just in case anyone's wondering, well, why would why would we be seeing this in classical world? When you look at injury from sound, it's about the intensity level, which perceptually we call volume, but it's really also about your length of exposure. And so many classical musicians are exposed for very long periods of time where there are some, there are some rock musicians, not all (laughs) who aren't exposed that long and they're not even doing their own sound checks. You know, they get on stage, they play for 45 minutes or an hour or whatever, and then they're done. Uh, Whereas some classical players are exposed maybe eight or 10 hours if they're in rehearsals, performances, they're teaching, um, et cetera. So that's, so just to kind of give the philosophy behind what we're talking about here, it's exposure length. I mean, I would say, I mean, my experience with bands too, it's, it's rehearsal is 10 times worse than shows. I mean, unless the show's in the tightest little space and it's super loud or whatever, but yeah. when, you, when you're on stage, it's not as bad, you know, in the rock world. It's when you're, it's not even the guitar amp, really. I'm saying that as, cause they kind of like blow by your legs. It's the front row that gets killed by the guitar amp, but, uh, the cymbals, right. They're just like crashing right in your face. Yeah. So. And wedges. Yeah. Because you got to get over the symbols right. <laughs> to, to hear clearly. Yep. yep. <laughs> Good old oh, signal to noise too. ratio. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that can, those, those small stages, I, well, obviously in the current era, I don't think any of us are gigging that much. I'm certainly not gigging as much as I used to, but I do have some memories on being on small stages, especially when I was living in Chicago um, and just being blasted. And just being so fatigued <laughs> sure. by the sound. Like it wasn't even the playing that was exhausting. It was the sound. Levels. Just from the wedge. Yeah. 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 yeah I, t- I tend to hate those <laughs> and turn them. I tell them to turn them down as much as possible mm-hmm. just because it yeah. doesn't, the, the amp doesn't sound right and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, well, if you have a polite audience, you can do that. Or you just turn the guitar amp up. <laughs> yeah. We do like to turn that up. It's like, what? Turn it they down do sound or? better when they're at like 10, you know? So. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I wonder, too, I mean, so you've always impressed me, Heather, because you're, you're like one of the, you're a go-getter and like, I see you doing all these things. Like you'll, you'll fly to talk to some symphony thing and then you're with a rock band and it's just cool to see you doing it. I suspect it's the same thing where you were saying there's only like five or 10 of you. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm imagining uh, a well-run band or something or orchestra is thinking, well, we didn't even know this existed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that would be awesome if you came and helped mm-hmm. us. Um, but I I got to imagine you see quite the variety of <laughs> people, you know, especially from different eras. I guess is where I was going to go to. So when you think of like the older rockers in particular, when mm-hmm. they weren't even using much onstage monitoring and they had, you know, s- tw- you know, 
third 30 of those amps, you know, like on the stage, um, just behind them, you know, and that they were cranked. Like, I can't even imagine how any of those people can still, still hear at all. Right. Sometimes they shock me though. Like there, there are, there are certain things that come into play. There are genetic components, you know, there's other parts of, of life that can cause hearing loss, vascular health is really big. So it depends on the person. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I see those older rockers and I test their hearing and I'm like, oh my gosh, your hearing's really good. How did this happen? You know, and they don't even know, but then their band might, their bandmate might have profound hearing loss. Right. So it, so it can vary from person to person. I just, I just finished that amazing documentary on Amazon about the Grateful Dead. I haven't it's seen like it yet. six it's episodes. Good. And one episode is dedicated to their wall of sound from like the <laughs> early seventies. And first of all, you and, and you need to watch it. It's so good. I think it was like episode four. I watched it twice because <laughs> I was like blown away, no pun intended, by the wall of sound. And um, you know, I think about I think about their crew. I have a real heart for crew. Not I sure. tend to I tend to post pictures of like being with the band because that's like good marketing, whatever. But the people who I really enjoy working with are the crew. Now those guys have a, even more sound exposure. The techs. The engineers, the guys setting up the stages. Oh, yeah. um, so anyway, I got off your point. I tend to do that, but yes, yeah, some of them have a lot of hearing loss. Some don't. Um, I tend to see that hearing loss itself isn't necessarily a career ender, unless it's like really profound. Uh, what tends to be the career enders for these people are what we call music-induced hearing disorders. So things like tinnitus, which we've already talked about. Um, there's something called hyperacusis that's also fa- fairly common, not as common as tinnitus, but it's basically um, perceiving loudness of sound abnormally. So hmm. a, a sound that you and I might perceive as being moderately loud, um, someone else might hear and it's painfully loud to them. And it can, hmm. it can lead to feelings of fear around sound. Um, there's a lot of counseling that goes into the therapy um, with that. I was just working with somebody on that last week, actually. Um, so tinnitus, hyperacusis, something called diplacusis or frequency smearing, which can be pitch perception issues, whether you're hearing you know, one pitch coming at you and your ears are perceiving it differently, um, or maybe you can't tell pitches apart anymore. And then um, disacusis, which would be like a distortion, basically, where hmm. sometimes I'll get players that say, um, my hearing seems fine, but you know, certain sounds sound like a broken speaker in my yeah. ear and it's driving me nuts and I can't tour anymore or something yeah. like that. And by the way, yes, these are in rock bands. They're, they're in classical world as well. Same disorders. Sure. I, re- I uh, read a book, uh, Music Ophelia by Oliver Sack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned um, a composer. I forget what the composer's name was, but basically like, you know, everything above like this C would be out of tune for him no matter what. Mm. Like he thought it was – he. The composer at the time was talking about like, yeah, I was playing at my friend's piano and, you know, I'm doing this comment and he's like, you're out of tune over here. And my friend and I got into an argument and he's like, no, I'm not. He's like, I'm pretty sure you are. And then he went home and tried it on an electric keyboard where it's like, clearly this is going to be in tune. And he's like, sure enough, everything above like what, like a C4 was out of tune relative. And he had, it took him like a couple of years of counseling and ear retraining his brain Because uh, I, I found that book absolutely fascinating because he, he comes from that angle of like how the ear interacts with the brain rather than just a physical ori- uh, 
organism of the year yeah. and those disorders. You know, I, I got a good friend of mine that's a composer that has synesthesia. Like anytime mm-hmm. that he's like an E flat is brown and a C is red. And he's like, that's it. And it, in his undergrad, it was extremely difficult for him to do the, uh, uh, not fixed dough, the relative dough. Yeah. Year training. Cause it just screwed him up. He was used to seeing a C is this color. Then all of a sudden they're like, no, that. And then when he's like, when I got to my graduate degree, it, it, it was a breeze. It, the school I was in there was fixed and everything made sense all of a sudden, mm-hmm. like to an, the nth degree. So do you encounter, I mean, you probably do, but is there a lot of that uh, type of disorder that happens with musicians? Like, is there a percentages you can shout out or is it more of on the damage end of things? Um, there, I mean, there are certain percentages and if you dive into the literature, you kind of see them all over the place. And the other thing is there have been a few studies done on like pop and rock and jazz musicians, but many more of the studies have been done on orchestras because they're a little easier to study and your N is bigger. It's a bigger cohort. You know, you've got like 90. And they stay in the same place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's just a little easier. Um, you know, there was a study done. I can't remember when, like. 2006 maybe or something like that um showing that in the rock pop jazz world up to 74 percent of musicians exhibit at least one hearing disorder um now that being said caveats because we know how research can be you can look at a lot of different studies and find a lot of varying numbers so so i can't give i don't want to give a hard and fast kind of thing now that the disorders like diplocusis which would be a pitch perception disorder does tend to be the incidence rate is much lower than something like tinnitus okay yeah and 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 whether that whether that means you know people who only have it very severely are reporting it for example Mm. you know i don't know these are certain things that we can test in certain ways but perhaps if someone has it very mildly Maybe they're ear training to it and we don't know they have it. Mm. So True. it's hard to say. So it's kind of very just perceive that as normal. And yeah. And it's like, well, oh, I didn't really they know, wouldn't know unless you tested them or something. Right. And I and, and also sometimes um, the condition can resolve itself and, and maybe it truly resolved or maybe you're trained to it. So I'll use myself as an example. I had this very loud gig where I had a wedge on my left hand side. This was in Chicago. And, um, I mean, I was already a practicing audiologist and I knew better, but I didn't wear my hearing protection and, um, it was very loud. And the next day at work, I actually didn't notice it with speech, but when an audiologist tests a patient, we wear a headset so we can hear the beeps too. And I was listening to the beeps and I thought, man, this is out of calibration. My equipment's way out. Like it's so flat on the left channel. What's going on here? Um, and then I realized it was me. So I was about a half step flat in my left ear for about 10 days, I'd say 10 days to two weeks. And I I mean, I bawled my eyes out. I (laughs) thought, I thought everything was over. That was it for me. Um, It did end up resolving. And occasionally I notice with certain pitches that my left ear is still a little flat. Sounds a little flat to me. Sometimes I can tell when I record and I listen back that that's not what I heard, you know, when I was playing. Um, not to a great degree. I'm a very picky person anyway. And I've heard other people say like, no, it's not flat. And I'm like, oh yes, it is. Um, but now whether that actually resolved or perhaps I ear trained to it, I can't say, I don't know. So for clarity, what do you mean by ear trained to it? Just because I'm kind of, the impression that I'm getting is that it becomes normalized 
yeah. in that particular person. Not necessarily that the problem is you've trained your ear to fix itself out of it. It's more of like you, you just become accustomed to it. Well, I mean, let's get into a philosophical philosophical discussion of what hearing is. I mean, we're right. it's we're <laughs> dealing with brain plasticity and an auditory system. And is it is it a hard and fast? Is hearing a hard and fast thing that should be right or wrong or normal or not? I argue with other audiologists that it's not. That's not the case with hearing. So even if we, I always say, if I put 10 people together in a room and they all have quote, normal hearing, they don't hear the same mm -hmm. because it's all based on how they were raised, how right. they've trained their ears. Some might be musicians, some might not be. And I do throw the term ear training around a lot because it's a term I'm comfortable with, but I know a lot of people who have been to music school are picturing like sight singing, <laughs> you know, yep. and that's not what I'm talking about. Um, but it's more about brain training. There's a, and, and I learned to, I've been trying to switch to that term brain training because that's really what it is or auditory system training. There's a really cool researcher at Northwestern University, Dr. Nina Krauss, and she runs a lab called Brain Volts. And I believe a lot of her research is on her Brain Volts website. And she has done a lot of research on musicians' brains. And I've talked to her a lot and we were at a conference together a few years ago and I kept throwing the word ear training out and talking about my patients and this and that. And she's like, you have to start saying brain training. <laughs> she's like, you're talking about the brain. You're not talking about like the ear that we see. Right. Um, so, so I should say, I should say it's brain training and adapting and recalibrating your auditory system. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Cause it's, cause I think what you're saying is the ear might be damaged, right? In a mm -hmm. sense, physically, mm -hmm. but your brain just compensates for it. Correct. Yeah. And even with, you know, I, there are many musicians who've had severe tinnitus where it's, you know, affecting them mentally. And there are things that we do, ther therapeutic things, um, that's, they're really all about that brain training. You know, when we talk about these disorders, are we getting rid of them? Not necessarily, which is not always the the nicest thing for musicians to hear we're lessening the response to the disorder right. i notice with myself once uh, it's it's strange how it fluctuates like some days will be better than others i don't know if it's weather related or not you know it's, oh, it's gonna get rain my knee hurts or my ears i'm going up to a c sharp the sun's coming out <laughs> you know or whichever but uh, the the underlying thing is that i've always thought that was curious because some days it's like it's overwhelming, not to the point of debilitating, but it's like really present. Like mm. there is a remark, a small break in any type of noise. Boom. It's yeah. like, nah, it's the entire yeah. time. And then other days, it, I don't even notice that it's there unless, yeah. you know, it's late at night and I'm getting ready for bed. And then there it is. And I'll turn the fan on and be able yeah. to fall asleep. Um, what, and it hasn't, you know, Right now on my guitar, uh, on my classical, I tend to notice that like, I was just complaining to Tim about it the other day. I'm like, you know, everything above the A on the second string sounds like it's out of tune. I've had this problem before, but I thought it was like, I changed the strings and then it was fine. But now I'm beginning to suspect maybe it's more than just the instrument. Now I got to change that string though. Um, <laughs> well, guitars are inherently have tuning issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You're someone who I would want to sit down with, and I have about like 30 questions I would want to ask. Because <laughs> there's a lot of nuance to this, and um, there are a lot of things that could be causing these these things you're experiencing, even the shifting in your tinnitus. 
uh, many audiologists are not trained to work with tinnitus. And so oftentimes people will walk into an audiology office, they'll have a hearing test done and the audiologist will say, okay, yeah, you know, you have some injury here. Of course you have tinnitus. You're a musician. That's what most musicians hear. Oh, you're a musician. Of course you have tinnitus. Sound like mine. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so, and then that's usually where the conversation stops. Um, And it's no fault of the audiologist. You know, there's a lot to learn when we're in school and tinnitus is not always a focus of that. Um, But like, I would like to dive deeper with you at some point okay. and ask you um, some more questions. Yeah. Like go right ahead. Personal I mean, questions. Um, okay. yep. But, um, and there's also like validated questionnaires to assess things like this and your reactions to them, et cetera. But there are a lot of things that can make tinnitus shift in pitch. And I don't know if this is the case for you, but sometimes I see with certain musicians um, who are very active when they play or who doing, I mean, we're, we're all muscle athletes. Musicians mm-hmm. are. And when you're doing repetitive motions, there are things that can happen. So I had a drummer in my clinic, I guess it was the end of last week, and um, he was talking to me about his tinnitus. And I just said to him, you know, when you do certain movements with your neck or whatever, does it change pitch? And he's like, oh my gosh, yeah, I do this one thing, you know, and he like did this weird, I don't know, like he did, you know, smiled and turned and he's like, it just shoots way up. It gets really loud and the pitch shifts. So that was my my key to know that maybe, I'm not saying this for sure, maybe his tinnitus was being caused not by injury to his ears, but by a misfiring of nerves from some other part of his body. Hmm. So that was, you know, I referred him on to an otoneurologist and to get things assessed and, you know, whatever. But many musicians think that, oh, they have tinnitus. It's, they, it's because they've hurt themselves in some way. And that very well could be, but there are many other causes of tinnitus. Many. Like with TMJ factor, and not that I have. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. People who have TMJ are people who grind their teeth, or even if someone's bite, you know, is slightly off, that can certainly cause it or trigger it or or worsen it. Um, And and more often than not, it's a myriad of things. You know, it could be that someone has TMJ and they also have injury to their ears, and it's it's more than one thing going on. So Hmm. sometimes it's hard to kind of separate those. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm just like, wow, this is a lot to take in. <laughs> just, uh, it's not just uh, standing next to the drums with my amp cranked up. <laughs> it could yeah, be something ro- or really could, wrong. Or it could be. Or it could be. Like, it's hard to say without, like, a yeah. really deep dive assessment. Um, but what I find is I get many audio or not audiologists, many musicians contacting me and saying, I went to see the audiologist and was basically told, yeah, of course you have tinnitus. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. where the conversation stopped. And to yeah. me, that's yeah, yeah, tough luck. And to me, that's a real heartache. Um, now, that being said, many audiologists don't test hearing on musicians. So like if someone's going in for a product, they'll often just take the ear impressions and then send them on their way and just like make a sale or, or whatever. Um, so if you are a musician listening to this and you're thinking about going to the audiologist, make sure you request a hearing test. Mm-hmm. There was a study done in Australia on this looking at, it was a survey study, looking at audiologists' care of musicians. And I think it was less than, or maybe it was 25%, somewhere between 25 and 35% of audiologists actually tested hearing on a musician. Wow. Yeah. That's really low. Yeah. <laughs> I figured that out. Like when I went in for mine, it was, it was the tinnitus, but it was also like, I need to get my hearing checked. You know, my wife. Yeah, and that's great. That's great. And that's what obviously what the appointment was for and that's what was going to be done. But oftentimes when musicians go in for something like earplugs or in-ears, 
they're not having hearing tests done. And they don't know that that's something they should be asking for so that they can track their hearing over time. Um, so that's just like a little advocacy thing for any musicians listening, like make sure you ask. And in that same study I brought up, um, so like for me, when I test hearing, I test more frequencies than what are typically tested. So usually an audiologist will test between 250 hertz up to 8,000 hertz because those are important for speech understanding. I remember my chart, yep. Yeah, and yeah. like most diagnostics we're working within that area. Um, with the equipment I have right now, when I was at Sensophonics, I would test up to 18,000 hertz. Um, and now with the equipment I have, I test up to, I test 125 hertz up to 16,000 with all like the inner octaves, like all the frequencies. Um, now in that study that was done, that particular study found that less than 3% of audiologists were testing additional frequencies on musicians. Now, some, some studies are showing that the extra, what we call extended high frequencies are important for detecting early injury to ears from sound exposure. Um, also, I like to test them because that's where our harmonic structure is. That's where our sure. overtone series is. We're using those for tuning and you know all kinds of things. So I, I do believe musicians should know what, what's going on up there. Um, so yeah, so request a hearing test and then request extended high frequencies. And the audiologists might not have the equipment, uh, but you can at least ask. Yeah, I, I think I will. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I just haven't done the other, like a, a couple of months ago. And once things started to open back up again, you know, my appointment yeah. came up and it's like, all right. And uh, I mean, just looking at, it was the same thing, like you said, up to 8,000. Mm -hmm. What was it? What was the beginning again? I, I, I blanked. 250. 250. Starts at 250. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so um, on my, just for myself personally, because I don't care about talking about it or hip or whatever for me, you know, um, plus I like me and talking about me. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. <laughs> I got to get some edge in, Tim. Come on. <laughs> Uh, but no, it, uh, the damage seemed to be on the, the higher end of the 3K the, towards 4K is where did that it, was. Did it look like a V shape? Yeah. Yep. That's called a noise notch. Or in your case, it would be a music notch. Okay. Is that yeah. like uh, the audiologist was asking me a lot about the, uh, can you hear stuff when there's noise in the room and you're having a conversation? I'm like, oh yeah, it doesn't bother me at all. Like I can have a conversation and, you know, I have the parental ears where I can hear just about anything when it call, comes to my kids, you know, doing stuff around the house. It's like I could be practicing and everything. What was that? You know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and maybe that's just the brain plasticity from having kids <laughs> or so on. The lack of sleep goes into changing your brain. Um, but uh, with that uh, on that chart, you know, I've had it done for three years now. And there's not too much decay, which is great. He's like, That's you know, you're awesome. pretty steady with that, which is good. Because once I got the original, uh, when I, I got the, the earplugs, the, the custom ones, mm -hmm. I mean, they, they never, anytime I do anything, like lawn mow, leaf blow, chainsaw, go to a concert, whoop, right in. Like, I don't screw around. And even then, good. sometimes I'll put another set of over ears on top of it just because I'm paranoid. Uh, I don't want anything. I don't want any worse. I mean, you know, it's just uh, one of those things. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of losing where I was going with that. But I guess in, in a nutshell, with that, like, is there anything coming down the pipeline maybe as a, to rejuvenate things with hearing? Like, or is this exactly, is the, the consensus like, no, there is absolutely nothing that we can do? Um, things are being studied. Now, I don't know of anything on the market right now to rejuvenate hearing. I know some things on the market that are lying about doing that yeah. uh, based of on course. the science um, that, you know, just, just what they're doing. And um, in fact, there are a couple of in-ear monitor companies right now that are claiming they can restore hair cells in the inner ear. Wow. That's just 
factually not magic. true. Yeah, yeah it is. Ma- yeah, it's magic. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> in fact, they had they had Brian Johnson say something about it recently, and it's like, dude, that's not <laughs> happening. Like you just heard really good audio quality. Um, you know, in terms of other pharmaceuticals, there are many studies happening right now. Um, many vitamin formulas being looked at uh, for both prevention of hearing loss from sound and then restoration as well, or what, or what's being called rescue drugs. So if you have a situation where you've been exposed, maybe you can take a high dose of something to come in and rescue the cells. Like, Mm. you know, some are calling it like a morning after pill for your ears kind of thing. Um, I, I myself am on a similar study right now, and I, I don't know how much I can talk about it. I don't know what's appropriate, but, um, I am on a pharmaceutical study right now. Are you participating or? Are, are uh, no, I'm one of the researchers where we're okay. looking at a pharmaceutical to prevent um, noise-induced hearing loss. But we're, we're researching in non-musical populations right now, like police officers and, you know, things like that. So, um, yes, the question the question was, is are, are things being researched? The answer is yes. Nothing exists right now that you can, like, go out and buy to restore your hearing. Um, or you can and see if you get a placebo effect. There are some apps coming out for training your ears. One is called Audio Cardio, um, where they are claiming they are claiming that they're improving hearing. Now, I've looked at the app and and I've talked to them, and they they might be. I'm not convinced yet by the studies, um, only because I think that we as musicians do listen differently. And there has been some research on that um, where a musician might take a hearing test a little better, you know, than a non-musician. So I wonder when I read these studies, were these non-musicians who were simply being trained to listen? Um, So there are little things like that I'm wary of where if they're only getting like a 5 or 10 dB improvement in hearing, I'm not necessarily convinced. And I think when, when someone is looking for a pharmaceutical or an app or things like that, I think that... Uh, uh, an art that was either lost or maybe not trained in like our generation a little bit younger is how to how to read scientific research. Um, so like if you pull up a study and you're reading it, first of all, it's okay to email the researcher. I, I do that frequently. If I'm reading something in like a, a journal for hearing and I don't get it, I'll email the researcher and ask and say, I'm, I'm confused by this. Can you walk me through it? And usually they're happy to. Um, if you send them, if you've already done your homework and you're sending them like one specific question. Um, but when you read these studies, you know, you should really look with a suspicious gaze at all times. I mean, that goes right. for everything in yeah. life. Yeah. Scientific if, method. You know, right. Yeah. If you're, you know, if you're reading an article in Mix Magazine or whatever, and they're saying, well, here's the claim. Well, go read the article. Mm-hmm. Go look up the article and read it. And if you if you don't have access, if you have a friend who works at a university or something like say, hey, can you get this article for me um, and dive a little deeper? So the reason I'm saying that is because you could walk into CVS or something and, and see like ring be gone or whatever's on the shelf yeah. and how it can restore your hearing, but read up on the science behind it. That's, you, you reminded me of something in the like mixing mastering world. There used to be this program that went around called uh, Golden Ears. I don't know if you ever saw that. No, I didn't. So basically, it's kind of like ear training, like learning, um, you know, intervals and whatnot, or you know, mm-hmm. but it was learning pitch frequency, like frequencies. So you'd have this CD, you know, as much CDs. I think Yamaha put it together, and it was like a book like this sort of. But you just listen to the CDs, and they would play white noise, and then like boost two hundred hertz. 
Was it to train perfect pitch or something? No, it's to train. So when you're mixing, you yeah. could be like, oh, that's oh, 500 oh. hertz. 500 hertz is a little too loud. I can turn that down. So they I would gotcha. do these things. Where it was, it was kind of like, yeah, learn learn what 200 hertz kind of. So it was more like, what does 200 hertz kind of sound like? What does mm-hmm. 500 hertz kind of sound like? So that when you hear it, you you just sort of know like, oh, I there's too many low mids in the mix. I'm going to turn that down. So it was it was that kind of thing. But I'm imagining you could use something like that to help someone like learn some some of those frequencies again. So if they were going through it, they're like, well, I don't hear a change maybe like at four four mm-hmm. K. Like Adam is you know, so four K, they're like, I don't I didn't was there a change? I didn't really hear it. It's mm-hmm. like, oh well it is changing there. So keep practicing that one and eventually maybe you could train yourself to hear it a little bit better. You'd be tricking yourself, your ears Maybe you don't hear it as well, but you'd be learning how to hear the frequency. Yeah, yeah. So an audiologist sometimes would call that oral rehabilitation. Yeah. And there are there are programs like that that we use even for like cochlear implant recipients. So when they like learn how to hear again, and absolutely those same same basics are in a lot right. of those training programs. What's interesting, you know, what's interesting about hearing and especially you know we're talking about kind of diplocusis again, so pitch perception issues. I've had patients where they have it that where it's noticeable enough that it's affecting them, but it's maybe not severe and just putting on amplification. Like if they have hearing loss and amplifying a little has worked it out. Yeah. And I'm not going to claim to be an expert or know every mechanism behind that and why. Um, and then sometimes I'll get someone who has it. What, what maybe I wouldn't consider severe if we're, if we're doing an assessment um, and they can't seem to train out of it. Yeah, so I was, I, I was kind of wondering about that. The you were so with Adam saying the 4K dip or whatever. Now, if you put some kind of hearing implant in to help you hear that, and maybe all it did was boost 4K just to make mm-hmm. it because maybe you needed it, wouldn't that also damage more that part of your ear to make it not worse? Ne- so it's like this constant moving target. Not necessarily. Okay. I, I mean, there's. There's a lot of there's a lot of factors there, and it depends on the amount of hearing loss they have, and what kind of sounds they're listening to, and how the device is set with its maximum power output, and like many many nuances and factors to that. Yeah. Like yes, someone could could continue to blow out their hearing. Well, if they have, it depends on what level their hearing's already at, and what sure. you're putting into it, and for how long, and you know all that stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, this is this is fascinating. I'm like trying to absorb as much as I can from it because I do notice like when I'm in a big recording mode, like when I'm doing a lot of well, I mean not recently, but when I was doing a lot of recording in acoustic spaces, particularly churches and so on, doing solo classical stuff for other guys, and using sensitive microphones, like I felt like my hearing without the like when I took the headphones off was that much more attuned to hear things. Like I could pick up on stuff that originally I couldn't have when I walked into the room. And mm-hmm. as that, like over the course of a couple of years, it was just like I could walk into a room and hear all the specific noises where I could set, like we're going to have a problem because that air conditioner is running and that vent's doing that and there's a drip back here and stuff where normally I would never pay attention to it. Um, mm-hmm. And that seems like it's part of exactly what you're talking about, the brain training. It's like, because I was doing this so much with the, the aid of the microphones and headphones and paying attention to different things that all of a sudden, once I t- remove that amp- extra push in terms of amplification, my ears were already sensitive to what was going on and being like, hey, that's that over there, that over there, or so on. 
Yeah. And also that's just an aspect of think of any job in the world and how you're in tune with what you need to know about. And, you know, this happens to be related to hearing, but, you know, with my job as a clinician, there are things that I'm thinking about or aware of that maybe someone who's just learning how to be an audiologist wouldn't be. So like you as a seasoned musician going into that environment, your job is to be auditorily aware. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're in the zone and you're training it and you're in there, you're going to be more aware of all these things. Um, like to me, that's what, that's what that sounds like to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like sense. you're an expert at your job. <laughs> sure. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, I'll take that win on that one. See, <laughs> I'm going to quote you on that on my bio. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I said you're an expert at your job. <laughs> you don't sound very good. No, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> exactly. Wait a minute. It's subjective, Tim. It's all subjective. Yeah. So, the world is all good subjective. Yeah. So, so Heather, me. you you went to school. I think was it were you a performance major originally? No, I was a music history major. Okay. Um, and through my time there, I was always focused on ethnomusicology because that was my life path that I had made for myself. And in fact, I had spent about a week in an ethnomusicology master's program at Kent State University before I dropped out. So I'm, I'm a college dropout, a grad school dropout, um, who decided to go into audiology instead. But I was, I was on the ethnopath for a very long time. Like ever since my early teens, I was like super into ethnomusicology. So So, what? Yeah, go ahead. I think the same question. Yeah. So so what inspired you to get into the audiology? Um, well, (laughs) it's kind of a long story. So I, so I started, um, the ethno program which I actually still love ethnomusicology. It's not that anything bad happened per se. It was just that I started it and I had, I had what my dad called a come to Jesus moment. <laughs> um, or somebody might call it like a, just a gut feeling, you know, mm-hmm. where um, I'm a Christian. And so I call it like Holy Spirit wisdom is like the term I would use. But um, I just thought, man, this isn't right for my life. Like, I don't think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This doesn't feel right. Like, I feel like I'm not being me. Uh, which I think everyone goes through a period like that in their lives, right? Or maybe multiple of those. Right. Um, so I was living with my family at home at the time to save money. I was very lucky I could live at home through school. And uh, I said to them, I don't want to do this anymore. And I want to drop out. And I'm embarrassed to say it. And I don't know what to do. So they talked to me and they said, well, what, what, do, you, what do you think you're drawn to at this point? And I said, well, I really want to help people in a hands-on way. Because to me, I had realized the concept of ethnomusicology was helping the society of music, right? The culture of music. But it was in a more detached way yeah. than what I want to do. I wanted to like hands-on people, like help them. And uh, so I first I thought maybe nursing, and then I looked up nursing and I was like, nope, not for me. I have, I, I love nurses. My mom always said, you know, nurses are the real doctors and I have cousins who are nurses and we're, yeah, oh, we're both, we're both married both, to nurses. Yeah, both oh, okay. There you go. Nurses. There you go. So I, so I looked into it. I was like, I don't think I can do this. Um, I don't have the brain for it. And, uh, then I, I randomly saw an online ad for the local audiology program, uh, which is called the Northeast Ohio audiology consortium. So it's Kent State University, the University of Akron, and the Cleveland Clinic. All three sites are in the consortium. So I went to the Kent Free Library and got some books on hearing. Like they had a book on cochlear implants, I think, and then like one on ear anatomy. And as soon as I started reading, I was blown away 
I was like, whoa, why was I never taught about this as a musician? <laughs> what have I been missing out on my whole life? Um, and I think we never learned about it in school either, right? We yeah. didn't. Yeah. And actually, I can get into that in a minute. But I, you know, because that's been a, another um, another thing I've been working on. Um, but long story short, I, I applied for the program through Kent State. I had a very small entrance essay. That was like, hey, I'm a musician and I love my ears and, you know, <laughs> please accept me. And they did, which was great. Um, and I had a very good school experience. And I was always the person who was focused on musicians the whole time. Like every project I did, I tried to focus on musicians. The last major grand rounds presentation that I had to give, which was a very big lecture to like the student body and faculty. Um, I did it on an opera singer who had had sudden hearing loss. And um, so I just knew that right away that that was the path for me. And since being a music audiologist, which is now going on a decade at this point, which feels like a very long time and yet no time at all, um, I feel very much like I am where I should be. And so I know it was the right decision for my life to switch out of ethno into audiology. Um, and there are certain things that I didn't think I could do that I've been able to do. Um, one of which is complicated math and science. I was always like the artsy one, you know, and um, it's amazing that when you're really into something, how your brain can step up to the plate um, and learn. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, it's really interesting that music schools don't incorporate this more. And I know the National Association of Schools of Music and the Performing, Health, the Performing Arts Medicine Association had put together guidelines. I mean, there are guidelines that accredited schools are encouraged to follow. It's not a mandate or anything. It's, it's an encouragement. Um, and some do try to partner with audiology programs or this and that, but it's they often don't get the education. And, and that's not the fault of the audiologists. Right. We're not taught any of this in school. If it weren't for me meeting Michael Santucci and having the fourth year experience that I had, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do this either. Um, so I ended up releasing last year during COVID terrible time to release a curriculum, but I released a video curriculum. So now some schools are using it and some orchestras are using it. And I even have individual musicians using it where it's like a nine module thing. It's about a hundred minutes or so. Um, and it goes over every aspect of what you need to know about your hearing and even gear as a musician. So now schools of music are subscribing and so well, students get a chance awesome. to learn that's about awesome. this stuff. And it covers, it covers everything in the NASM guidelines, you know? So it's like, okay, if you're looking at these guidelines, everything's covered. But I think back to the University of Akron, and I don't, I don't know who there would have taught it. Sure. You know, I mean, yes, there's an audiology program on campus, and they do work with the band. They were working with them. Um, I think when when we were there, just the percussion department had like a thing set up for, for getting earplugs. They work with the band now, but there isn't a music audiologist on staff. Although I am currently staff at Akron U for the research study I'm on. Um, but I don't know how schools are supposed to get a hold of the music audiologists and get like a really expert program or maybe even be able to afford it. You know, that's the other thing. A lot of musicians are, are have a hard time getting proper care education because of affordability. I mean, Adam, you mentioned that earlier. You, you yeah. chose the audiologist you saw because your insurance would cover it, where I'm a self-pay clinic. For me to take on the, the insurance monster... Is like oh, yeah. not worth it for me yeah. um, in terms of you know what I can afford to do, and so uh, many musicians are in this position or schools of music where they're looking at how can we how can we get everyone's hearing tested and like earplugs and everything else. Where if they see an affordable education option, you know at least then they know they've done the education and then the student can make their own decisions, uh, which I think is often better. I, I'm really more for education than regulation. Um, I think it all everything starts with education. 
Mm. Yeah. Well, like you said, the the yearly checkup too, right? It's the like preventative yep. preventative sort of yep. care. And more and more, we're seeing online hearing tests pop up. And though many are not validated right now, um, there are some promising ones. And so it could be soon that a musician can get online and check their hearing and and trust it. I think that's in the near future. Hmm. That would be pretty wild. Yeah, it would be. It would be wild, but it would be really convenient and awesome. I mean, if I didn't have to fly all over God's green earth to go test hearing, (laughs) (laughs) that'd be great. Yeah, I remember when I was having an extra difficult time with the tinnitus, I I did like, you know, I searched tinnitus relief, you know, trying to find something. And there was a a website where a guy, he's like, allegedly, this would help. And honestly, I think that it did, mainly because I just dove headfirst into it just to try and get some type of, okay, I I just need a break, just a break, just just even two minutes of Mm -hmm. nothing would be, I, I, I would cut off my right arm for it. You know, and I was just yeah. at that mental breaking point. Yeah. And what it was is it was a it was a hearing test, but it was basically just picking high and low. That was it. And he would play two frequencies and it would get smaller and smaller intervallically, not musical inter- intervals, mm-hmm. but the frequency intervals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that honestly, I th- either it resolved on itself or that helped it resolve. Uh, but it was something where it was like, all right, every day, three times a day, this is what I'm doing. You know, it was just five or 10 minutes. And you just, you know, it would just, which pitch is higher, A or B, A or B, A or B. And it would yeah. just come at you. Yeah. And it really, well, I mean, it's so subjective. It's like, I'd like to say that it worked because it kind of did help. You know what? But, you if know, you it, said it worked, it worked. That's the thing with tinnitus. Like every tinnitus patient's different and there is not a one size fits all for therapy or treatment. And if that worked for you, that worked for you. Yeah. I noticed that anti-inflammatories make a difference. Like if I have to take ibuprofen for something, all of a sudden my tinnitus, am I saying it right? Is it tinnitus or tinnitus? You can say it either or either way. (laughs) So I'm going to go on with that. In the U.S. we say tinnitus. I mean, when you say tinnitus, it implies like an inflammation and that's not, that's not what it is. It's a more of like a misfiring of nerves. So tinnitus seems a little more appropriate. But like, I think in the UK, they all say tinnitus. You can say it. I don't care how you say it. Okay. They're, they're, both, wanna... they're both accepted. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I don't want to be the, that. Then there's that guy over there that can't say a word. <laughs> yeah. So, but no. Um, what country are you like, from there, Adam? <laughs> I'm from the US of A. These colors don't run. So, uh, <laughs> but anyways, I noticed like ibuprofen tends to make a difference. If I take an ibuprofen for like something else, it's like, oh, look, that's better. So I started doing a, a, um, a regimen of vitamin B, like that's mm-hmm. like part of my daily vitamins is that it will grow with time as I get older. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. just, just blend them all up in a blender because it's easier <laughs> to consume them. But, you know, that that tends to be, as long as I keep on top of those particular things, it, it's generally not too bad. Yeah. Uh, and some people find the opposite where they yeah. take certain things and it makes it spike up, you know, well, for whatever reason or certain alcohol. things in their diet. Yeah. For it, mine, it's typically tequila. I, for whatever reason, like I have pretty mild tinnitus. It doesn't keep me up at night or anything, but sometimes it gets a little frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, not to get on a conversation about alcohol, but like there are oh. other things I will drink and it, it doesn't really affect it. But I notice if I have a little too much tequila, my ears are like blasting and my tinnitus sounds like I always describe it as like a galaxy. Like it sounds like a galaxy to me, which I know people who have tinnitus, that's how it is. You know, you're trying to describe it to somebody else and they... There's like no way to describe it sometimes, and, and no one can hear it but you. You sure that um, wasn't yeah. tequila talking? No, I'm just kidding. 
Yeah, I had a little bender before the podcast tonight. Um, no, it's, you know, everyone is truly an individual. And so you already finding what works for you is the goal. Like the goal of any therapy, uh, there are very few treatments for tinnitus. So there's a difference between treatment and management. A treatment would be if your tinnitus is caused by something that can be medically fixed, you know, and, and a management is, okay, maybe we can't medically fix this, but we can manage it. And mm -hmm. so that would be that, you know, what you were saying about listening to those intervals of frequencies and things like that, that worked for you. The goal of any management is to, is to retrain your brain to not notice the tinnitus or to not be bothered by it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's just, it's not easy. So what are, what, what is that that actually happens physically in the year that are the problems? So why, why is this even a thing? Why do we have problems? Why doesn't it fix itself? Oh, why do we have And I know problems? it's a huge question. So. <laughs> why do we have problems, Tim? Yeah. We all want to know. I mean, when you think of ear anatomy, there's the part we can see, right? There's our external ear, our pinna, it's called, and it's got a lot of different parts to it. And um, its job is to funnel sound in, right? And it's going into your external ear canal, your ear canal. Now, at the end of your ear canal is your eardrum. And the eardrum looks like, uh, it's called the tympanic membrane and looks like a tympany, looks like the, a drum head, basically. And that is attached to the three smallest bones in your body. And those bones can fit on half the size of a dime. They're called your ossicular chain. And there's a reason why I'm walking you into where we see the injury. So you've yeah. got, the ear works very much like a microphone where it's taking acoustic energy and it's translating it into electrical impulses because our brain does not speak the language of our world. So our world is this acoustic energy, these molecules around us. Our brain doesn't speak that. And so our, we need an interpreter or a translator, and that's our auditory system. It's, it's all, the, all the gear we have in our heads. Right, our and most then sound itself, right, is a, it's a pressure wave. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes, and that's why we measure it in sound pressure level. Yeah. So when sound's going into the ear canal, Ear canals actually amplify sound anywhere between 2,000 to 7,000 hertz. Um, so, for example, Adam, your, your hearing test, you mentioned that notch showing up like at 3K or whatever. We tend to see that show up on the hearing test anywhere between 3K and 6K in terms of frequency. And part of the reason, not the only reason, but part of the reason is because of this external ear canal amplification. Um, some studies have measured as high as a 30 dB SPL amplification in the ear canal. You don't know it because you're born that way. You know, whatever your own individual amplification is, ears are like snowflakes and you just get used to whatever you have. So then when you hit the eardrum and you're setting the three smallest bones in your body into motion, that's mechanical energy. That's, that's giving you an additional about 30 dB amplification. Okay. So why, like why all this amplification? Well, you're about to hit fluid. So when you get to the inner ear, which is a, it kind of looks like a, a snail, it's called the cochlea. It's filled with tens of thousands of little nerve cells called hair cells, and they're bathed in fluid. So there, there are two types of fluid. One is high in potassium, one's high in sodium. And as this little bone is moving in your middle ear, it's called the stapes foot plate. It's tiny, it's cute. It's making the, the fluid move. It's causing waves in this inner ear. Now, when those waves happen, you know, we're musicians, we're playing music. We're hearing this. And as I'm speaking to you, by the way, all of this is happening in real time as I'm talking to you, which is just mind blowing. Uh, all those little cells are dancing back and forth. And when they do that, they open up, uh, an ion channel opens up and the sodium and potassium combine um, and they create a chemical transduction, which sends a neurotransmitter 
and you get a signal up your eighth cranial nerve, which is your <laughs> your auditory and your vestibular nerve part. But your vestibular system is also in there, <laughs> your balance system, part of it anyway. Um, and then all the processing is done up your, your, uh, your, there's many stops along the auditory system. And then finally to your cortex, your brain. Um, and that's where you hear. Now, okay, so I've given you like the quick and dirty on the anatomy. Of yeah, course, it's sure. much more intricate than that. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. many things can happen to any part of that system. So things can block sound, even like a plug of earwax in the ear. Um, now in the middle ear space, you can get things like ear infections. Like both you guys have kits, right? Maybe you've dealt with an ear infection or two. Yep. That's something happening in the middle ear space behind the eardrum. When you get into the inner ear, into those cells, that's where we tend to see permanent injury. Um, those cells can be fragile. And there's really two ways, and we'll just talk about sound exposure. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that cells can be injured. Well, no, let's get a little deeper into it. Sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking like, what should I say? But, you know, for, for most frequencies of hearing, like the frequencies audiologist test, I don't really expect hearing loss from aging alone. There's usually a cause. Um, and some of the main causes are sound exposure, um, certain diseases or viruses. Uh, Life-saving meds like chemotherapy can cause something called ototoxicity, uh, which would be, you know, affecting especially very high frequencies of hearing. Um, vascular health, I brought that up earlier. Like how your blood is flowing is very important because blood is the nutrition to those cells um, in your inner ear. And um, I missed one. I usually there's there's five and I'm blanking because it's because it's my bedtime. Um, so sound exposure, diseases and viruses, vascular health, medications. Um, yeah, I don't know, guys. I just totally my mind went blank. That's okay. That's okay. But for us, we're talking probably mostly to musicians. I would think are listening to this. So yeah. sound exposure and blood flow tend to be the two that I speak most often about. Oh, genetics. Duh. Genetics. If you think you have a genetic predisposition to hearing loss, you're maybe going to get hearing loss. That's a bummer. Um, yeah. It is. It is a bummer, but it happens. Uh, so, in any case, when we're exposed to sound, two things can happen. We can get a temporary hearing loss, or we can get a permanent hearing loss. So, a temporary hearing loss would be if I go see. A, a favorite rock band of mine. Keen is one of my favorite bands. And I might not want to wear hearing protection at their show because I just want to take it all in. Well, if I leave the show and my ears are muffled for, you know, a couple hours or a day, but it comes back to quote normal, that's called a temporary threshold shift, a TTS. And a temporary threshold shift is temporary. Um, and those cells kind of, they can bend down, they pop back up. Now there can be lasting effects of that, like understanding speech and background noise. Um, and that's something that's that's a new hot topic in research right now. It's called cochlear synaptopathy uh, or hidden hearing loss. Now, if a sound is loud enough for long enough, it can cause a permanent threshold shift, a PTS. And that is a permanent injury to those cells. And it can be from things being louder than you expect because of that amplification from the ear canal. The, the cells that are most affected in that 2,000 to 7,000 range also happen to be right where that foot plate of that little bone is hitting the inner ear. So there's some mechanical things going on. Um, also their blood supply might not be great. And so it's, it's not just amplification of, of the outer ear. There's, there's other things going on, but to answer your question, Tim, that's actually how the injury is occurring. Okay. And sometimes they, sometimes they pop back up a little bit. Sometimes they don't. Um, many people think after several periods of that temporary shift in hearing. So if you go to a few shows and you have a temporary shift, you think, oh, the next one's going to be permanent. That's never, 
in terms of what I know, the literature reviews I've done and me working in hearing conservation for a long time, that's never really been proven through evidence. Hmm. So, um, now I'm not saying go out and get a bunch of temporary shifts in your hearing because they're, uh, awesome. you know, that can cause, tin that can cause tinnitus and, you know, trouble hearing speech and background noise and other things like that. But, um, P TTS and PTS tend to be two, two separate discussions. Did that answer your question? Yes. Okay, <laughs> good. I always tell a lot more than I need to. No, it was that was a little, not a little. It was a lot more information than I was expecting. But it's great because it's it's a lot to think about. It had me in my head. I'm like, I wonder, like considering that it's all subjective uh, to an extent in terms of the experience with that. And on the mechanical end of things, is my head was like, I wonder if there's an ideal layout for the ear to get so that you know you can hear every because you know to, to, me and Tim lately have been going down this audio file path of the headphones and so on. It's like, oh, look at these, look at these. So it's only a thousand dollars for these. Oh, Why I not? Know. Try it, that you know? happened to me the other day with the Biodynamics Alento ear. Yeah. Ah, yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Not to get off topic from hearing. No, but, okay. oh, I mean, this is hearing related, but it's not like <laughs> care related. Maybe it is care related. This was like a self-care moment. I was doing a review of them for somebody I'm consulting with and I I put them in and I put on this music and I'm not kidding, guys. Tears came out of my eyes. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. It, oh, my gosh. And I was like, am I an audiophile? Like, I didn't think I was. It. Like, I, am I, I tell I this to everybody. <laughs> I say once you crack that oh, it's line, tough. once you hear it, once you get into it, it's like, I, it's like, why do you start not to crave it? Like, it? Yeah. I just sit in. I have a chair next to this you know, mess here, but, uh, I have a chair next to this that I'll just sit in and listen to music rather than watch TV. Cause I mean, that yeah. I didn't know what I was missing. Yeah, you know, I it's know. like, holy smokes. And then, you know, uh, we were just talking about how Apple music just gave everybody lossless for free yeah. and, and plus, you know, up to like 32 bit, 192 K, which is crazy yeah. resolution. Yeah. And it's like, so I'm going through all my catalog, like going, Oh, let's listen to, and just like, Oh my gosh, what the heck? You yeah. know, I, yeah. I, I, my mom is one of those examples of where, like, I don't really believe it. And then she sat down and I'm like, what do you want to listen to? And she's like, I, Bocelli. I'm like, all right, fine. Boom. And sure enough, just like, she's like, I, I I've never heard it. Like, I'm like, yeah. yeah, you have no idea what you're missing. And that's right. the problem because you crack that seal. And it's right, like, I got to have that again. I got to have that again with this. I got yeah. to. And, and is there something better? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, why would I spend 500 when I can spend a thousand dollars and is there I know. a double of a thing or is it like the diminishing returns on an instrument you know and then like, people get into cables are you using a silver cable are yeah. you using like a gold round cable and yeah. it's like what i didn't even know this was a thing i like to get on head fi oh, and oh, read sure. and oh like, yeah oh my goodness oh yeah. my goodness i love the conversations about in-ear monitors on there like the customer yeah, i was looking at the ue's uh ultimate ear ones uh just because i have the, i still have the molds like i, I got my uh headphones or not my headphones my hearing protection right here nice yeah great so i've always been tempted about that because i'm like if i don't have to if i can just wear those to listen to music while i'm doing lawn work i don't mm. need but like mm -mm. and then i'm like that's probably not so the you way didn't have my dad <laughs> you can't you can't do that i'm not gonna let you do that only because no. only because they're acrylic. Um, I so another another study I'm working on right now at the University of Akron is looking at isolation levels of in-ear monitors from the top companies. Mm. Um, we haven't released our data yet, but when you look at an acrylic in-ear monitor versus like a silicone in-ear monitor, you might be getting I don't know anywhere ten to fifteen dB isolation from the acrylic, where you're going to get thirty to forty from the silicone. Yeah, that, that was 
Not to, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but it seems no, like- No, no, I'm just telling you, I'm not going to let you get UE. Well, okay. I like UE. I actually wear my UE. I have JHs in right now. But when you don't need much isolation, they're fine. But at what point are you willing to risk your hearing, I guess, is what <laughs> no it comes point down whatsoever. to. <laughs> yeah, None. so it's like when you look at, if you're, if you're mowing and it's like 100 dB or it might be 95 or somewhere around there, and you're only getting like 10 dB of isolation- so like then you're at 90 dB in your ear canals. The way your brain works, you have to be at least 6 dB higher than that to hear your signal clearly, which would be what you're listening to. So you're you're not very safe for very long. Mm-hmm. Like you might be safe for a half hour there, but maybe not much longer. Where if you have a 30 to 40 dB isolation and then you're putting it 6 dB or more above that. So like you're at 70 dB in your ear canals and then you go up to maybe 80 in your what you're listening to. You're safe forever. Mm-hmm. Almost. So these, so these are little things to think about um, and calculate, you know, as you're choosing devices, um, not to stop you as you were getting excited about a purchase. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I like UE too. You know, they're 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 a good, pre- pretty good product, and they're I've gotten into the world of other companies since leaving Sensophonics, and I do occasionally fit people with UE if they've gotten a good deal and that's what they can afford and this and that. But with acrylic, you need to be extra careful with your hearing. Mm. See, that's something I had no idea. I just figured, oh, it's got a seal. I didn't even factor the materials. Yeah, the marketing. Oh, the marketing world is full of lies. So (laughs) they usually say like, oh, we're super isolating and we're at like 30 dB isolation. And if they can't prove it in some way, um, or for anybody listening, if you have acrylic in ears, audiologists can measure this. So like if you want to know what isolation you're actually getting, you know, ask your audiologist to do like something called a REIT measurement or other measures, um, and, and really see what you're getting. Huh. Or contact Heather and she'll do it for you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, or or come to the university, you know, and we can do a bunch of stuff there because they have a really amazing amount of equipment. Um, but in any case, that was a really long, that was a really long, um, I was butting in to you to say, I wouldn't recommend acrylic for when you mow your lawn. <laughs> okay, no, that's it's good to know. I'll take the button. The more I... I, I I am very consciously aware of making sure I don't damage the ears. Yeah. You know, like I'm at a point now where it's like, no, I don't want any worse. And that's it. And after going back and getting those consistent checkups and seeing that I'm pretty much stable, you know, mm-hmm. with that, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm definitely on the right track here, you know, and, and yeah. sure, you know, it, uh, I look ridiculous with like, you know, the, the big things when I'm mowing the lawn and on top of the other ones that go in the ears. And I'm like, nope, not taking the risk. Sorry. I'll look like the, the weirdest guy on the street. Is I, you know what though? I think culture's changing, and actually, I see more and more people protecting their hearing now, and I see more and more news articles about it. And I don't think it's just because I'm an audiologist, you know, and like yeah, algorithms put it at me. I I really am. Even when you drive down the street and you see people mowing or weed whacking, I'm seeing more and more earmuffs. Mm. So I think people are more educated now about it, even versus five years ago or right. ten years ago. Um, well, some yeah. of it is probably just ease of access before all we could get was those little foam ones right and nobody really likes those anyway (laughs) but now you can get better quality kind of easier or over the Mm -hmm. over year stuff at Lowe's or whatever yeah so i wonder if it's just easier too right probably i mean i just ordered my aunt a pair of earmuffs for when she weed wax and i mean i ordered them on amazon and got them in two days right and it was just so i didn't even have to leave my house you know um there's a there's a new company I'm working with for teleaudiology and uh, we're developing like a marketplace of devices where people can get on and see how audiologists have reviewed them 
and hearing protection is one of the sections because sometimes it can get overwhelming when you go on Amazon or somewhere, you know, of course I know what I, what I'm looking for, but if it's someone listening to this and they think, man, I got on Amazon and I looked at hearing protection and I got 5,000 results (laughs) and I don't know what to get. That's where your local friendly audiologist comes in, you know, and you call them, everyone should have a relationship with an audiologist, you know, and that's something that gets missed. You should have someone you can email or call and say, I really want to protect my ears and can, can I pay you for 15 minutes of your time to like, mm-hmm. talk to me about this? And yes, you should pay your audiologists, just like you should pay your musicians, you know, and hey, anyone else who puts work yeah. in. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's, that's something where if someone's listening, they're not sure what to get, or they want to confirm that they've made the right choice, they should speak with their audiologist. Or particularly awesome. if you're a magician, they should come to you at Soundcheck Ideally. Audiology. I'm plugging <laughs> in I'm plugging Ideally, or, or subscribe to my curriculum. Yes, yeah, ideally. Now, where can they subscribe to your curriculum? Uh, by emailing me. Uh, I have a page on my website. It's soundcheckaudiology.com slash curriculum. And they can email me. Um, and one thing I've realized since COVID, so I have pricing on my page that I designed before the world went mad. <laughs> um, and I will say if someone emails me and they want a subscription that I've become quite flexible within reason. I still need to break even, you know, but if someone really wants the education and they're like, I haven't worked in a year, but I really want to start learning this. I'll work with you. I've been doing that a lot recently. Um, my end goal is not to become rich and famous. My end goal is to help musicians. So, yeah. So just let me know what, what, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I'd like that, let me know what works for you and we'll work it out. Yeah. And we'll, we'll put the links and stuff everywhere. And absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been like, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. It's like you, you mentioned that you like to ramble, and we're like, no, that's that's fine. This is all information. <laughs> that's what podcasts are for. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It gives us a little outlet for that. But seriously, all the information has been absolutely incredible. And if you want to well, interview me in terms of like the questions for the tinnitus at any time, just let me know. Yeah, I mean, what maybe what we should do is is record like an appointment. Yeah. You know, if anyone would want to listen to it and see how how we do that, that could be interesting. Um, But any, you know, anybody who would happen to listen to this, if if you have questions about your hearing, my email address is Heather, my first name, at soundcheckaudiology.com. I get way too many emails every day um, about from musicians all over the place asking about their hearing, but I I tend to respond within 24 hours is what I try to do. So if anyone has a question, just email me or reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram. Very cool. And what's your Instagram handle? Or is that on Just your website? At, at Soundcheck Audiology. Okay. My hashtag is Soundcheck Your Ears. There you go. So. And she does. She shares great stuff. I mean, there's always interesting articles and just cool things she's doing too. So Thank make you. sure you like and subscribe and all that stuff. Thank you. Yeah, my, I really love to – yet another thing I like to do for musicians. So many of us don't know how to read research articles, right? And yeah. so I, I try to read them and boil it down to what was the main point here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's what I'll post in like an image because that's how we tend to take in information right now. Yeah. We need to see a picture and like one sentence. <laughs> and that's all we can do. <laughs> so, I believe the word you're looking for is meme. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. I make like, you know, music audiology memes. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really appreciate being on the show, guys. Thank you for having oh, me. Oh, thanks for coming. This has been yeah, great. We'll have to do this again. You know, so yeah. we've, we've actually talked about your stuff on the podcast previously, and we're always like, oh, we should get try to get you on here. So, yeah. Yeah. Thankful. And if you ever, like I mentioned, being co chair with the 
Wellness Committee for the College Music Society. If you ever want to talk to another healthcare provider who works with musicians, um, like I know a great physical therapist awesome. who would be interested. Yeah, I I know a lot of us deal with back pain and, and wrist pain and all kinds oh, of I've stuff. I've had carpal tunnel surgery on my hand. Yeah, see? Like it was endoscopic, so you don't see anything, you know, but it, yeah. that changed my life. I had no idea that I was that insensitive to my fingers. Like I would play, and after seven minutes, so like in a concert, after seven minutes, and if it was a longer piece, particularly a fugue or whatever that I was working, my hand would go completely numb. Like, and I'd oh. be playing by just watching it, you know, and I'd, I'd make it, whichever, and then I'd have to stop and, you know, mm. okay, all right, and then go to the next one. But soon as that snip happened, I, I like I woke up from the surgery and I was like, holy cow, like, really? Like, you got to be kidding me. And I couldn't yeah. play officially for six weeks, but you know, that was the longest six weeks of my life. I'm oh, like, yeah. come, on, come, on, come on, come on. But as soon as yeah. I could get back on it, it was like, wow. And ever since then, no problems whatsoever. Like none. And that's, that's, really, that's amazing. To me, that's amazing. And like, all it took was you taking a step to care for your body. Yeah, sure. yeah, like, well, this I, was after a long sequence of, you know, physical therapy and mm. chiropractic and injections mm -hmm. and this. And it's like the chiropractic and the massages helped, but it had to be weekly. And yeah. that was not cheap. You know, and no, it was, it's yeah, not. I was just like, you know what? I, if the surgery is going to do it and then I don't have to see you guys again, no offense. I'm going to the surgery because they were all pretty pushing anti-surgery. I'm like, this guy's like the top guy in Cleveland. It, yeah. No well, there, are, there are risks associated. Yeah, and, and in your case, it turned out really well, yes. you know, but for some musicians who get surgeries, it doesn't turn out really yes. well. And, and that's then it's like, okay, problem. now what do I do? So, so it can be really scary. And, you know, something also throughout that process that that gets overlooked is mental health. Mm -hmm. You know, when my back got really bad a couple of years ago, it was really hard for me mentally. Mm -hmm. um, because I was like, what is happening? Where's my identity now? If I can't yep. play the same way, I was having to relearn technique. And actually I had a really helpful conversation. I think we spent like an hour or two on the phone. Um, do you guys know Matt DiRubertis? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. And I remember calling him and saying, I'm not sure who else to talk to right now about what I'm experiencing mentally. And I think for any musician, and he just talked me through it for, as a friend would. Yeah. And I think, and that has always meant a lot to me. And I think for any, because I, I know he had struggled with some hand things too and whatever. And so he was able to identify with me, talk to me. Um, anyway, my point is for anyone... Again, for anyone listening, I'm thinking of who could be listening. If you're going through something, you've got to talk about it. You've got mm -hmm. to talk about it, not just to your healthcare providers, but to other musicians and people who maybe can relate. And the other thing is for anyone young listening to this, meaning you haven't started a career, please get into healthcare. Please be, <laughs> please be a musician who gets into healthcare because we don't have enough who know how to work with us. Or marry a musician. Because that's what we or Mary, yeah, up or Mary musician. Yeah. That was surreal. When we were in school, it was like I was dating my future wife, and she was going through nursing school. Tim, you already married Kate, yeah, and she was already a nurse at that time, right? I think yeah. so. And that yeah. there was like two other couples that were musician. The guy was a musician, and the the girl was a nurse or becoming a nurse. I love that. It's got to be some type of. <laughs> mental thing like the way that musicians work and the way that musicians or nurses think it, that it just gels or something it, it's yeah. it, it was fascinating to me fascinating. we're all here and you're all nurses and we're all musicians yeah. just weird. It was, it was you know the guitar thing you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> we get the nurses that's it because they're like how many needs to fix these guys <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, this has been, again, it's been great. And I think it's just, just highlighting that, you know, any musicians listening to this particularly who are or probably who's listening to this, you're not alone, right? That mm-hmm. Like we're all going through these things, whether it's our ears or even, you know, physical things. Yeah, absolutely. So don't, don't think you're, you know, by yourself. And yeah. like you said, go, go see someone. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank right. you. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you guys. Much. Thanks All for right. having me. For sure. Catch you later. See ya. Thanks. Bye.